0: Ani ma'amin, I Believe. It's a simple form of Maimonides' 13 Jewish principles of faith. The song is known as the Hymn of the Camps and is attributed to Reb Azriel David, who composed the tune in a cattle car on his way to Treblinka. This melody was taken up by others who sang the song as they were being herded into the gas chambers of the Nazi concentration camps. Ani Ma Ani I believe. Ah, me, ma, amen. Ah, me, ma, amen. Behemo, na, shleh, ma, beviat, hamashi. V'viyat ha-mashiyach, Ani ma-am-in. V'yaf Im-ko-zeh, Ani Maamin, Ani Maamin, Ani Maamin, Ani ma be shleima, beviat ha beviat beviyat ha-mashiyach, ani m-am-in. im koze Anima, amin. Anima, amin.
1: Cantor Ellis has just sung Anima, amin. I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah and even though he tarries, nevertheless I believe with perfect faith. And so uh, it was that uh, countless Jews, as they were walking into the gas chambers or as they were about to be killed in other ways, chanted those words and sang that song, believing in perfect faith that even though their demise was imminent, They believed with perfect faith that one day the Messiah would come. And according to Jewish belief, the Messiah will bring peace to the world and the time of peace will be here. And all those who have perished in ancient times throughout history will miraculously come to life. And uh, in the Shabbat service of just a week or so ago, the Sabbath during Passover we read the prophecy of Ezekiel about the Valley of the Dry Bones, which is a prophecy predicting that even though the Jewish nation might have been destroyed during uh, the time of the destruction of the first temple, nevertheless, there would be a resurrection of that Jewish people, and sure enough, there was a second temple. But in turn, the second temple was destroyed in the year 70, and the Jewish people have been wandering through the years, through the centuries, until the reestablishment of the State of Israel in 1948, and even now, the State of Israel is under great threat. But on this day, Yom HaShoah Hagvurah, we remember not just the victimhood of the Jewish people, but we also remember the courageous actions of people, of Jewish people, as well as others, who, uh, despite uh, the threat of death, Uh, risked uh, their lives in so many ways to provide help and healing to people who were injured to try to save what little they could under the extraordinary circumstances of the Holocaust. I must say, uh, each uh, year, uh, I am so thankful that uh, you, uh, California Lutheran University, invites me to speak about uh, this day and on this day. Uh, But I would like to just share that everyone should know that uh, during the course of a Jewish year, even though this is one of those days in the Jewish year, there are no fewer than 100 Jewish festivals and holidays that are of happy nature. And if you only see me on this day, then you might think and conclude, Judaism is a lugubrious victimization religion, and I want you to become a member of it. No, no, no. <laughs> Join my suffering, please. You know. Uh, no, that, uh, that would not be a fair portrayal of our faith. Uh, a prominent teaching in the Book of Psalms is Yiv Duet Hashem simcha We should serve the Lord with happiness and joy, with simcha. And indeed, there are so many wonderful holidays. But today, it's Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. And so because of that being the nature of the day, it is appropriate that we focus on that. But I want to share, because this is a university setting, I want us to realize that there was a couple of realizations that the world had to face as a consequence of the Holocaust which were quite unintentional. And the number one uh, realization that I want to focus on is the fact that there were people who were graduates of universities with advanced degrees, who had PhDs, who had medical degrees, Who are a part of a killing machine and use their knowledge for the purpose of of killing more people more efficiently. And that just because we go to a university and study the humanities does not make one a humanitarian. And that we can be uh, graduates of universities with advanced degrees, even with a medical degree whose purpose means that you are going to be devoted to the healing sciences that you will be the very one, and I'll mention one name and we'll say, Yamach Shamo, may his name be erased in the same moment that I remember and remind us of his name, I want and pray that his name will be forgotten. But we need to learn, his name was Dr. Joseph, I don't even have to say the name, Dr. Joseph Mengele. And he stood at the entrance to Auschwitz and the lines of Jews coming off the cattle cars would come before him, and he would say to a person without explanation, you go to the right, you go to the left. And we have here the Monshines. You are both Holocaust survivors. Thank God you are alive. Are there any other Holocaust survivors present? Uh, when you uh, were in different camps, did you ever confront or were you, did you meet or see Dr. Mengele? Did that... You're Mauthausen, so you were in a different camp. There were many, many camps. But uh, one of our members, uh, Giselle Hartenbaum, uh, wrote a book about her life entitled Giselle Save the Children, Her Mother's Last Words to Her, and she told about how she met Dr. Mengele and was told to go this way and her mother was told to go that way and so she never saw her mother again. Her mother's last words to her as she, as her daughter Giselle went to the right, Giselle save the children, meaning her four younger sisters. In any event, so that as a consequence of the Holocaust, we learn that just getting a liberal arts education or a general studies major as an undergraduate of a university and even going on to get a PhD in whatever subject or even a medical degree does not necessarily mean that as a consequence of that education, that you will use it for wonderful purposes to help and enhance this world. But the blessing of it is, and I congratulate Cal Cal Lutheran, that you pause for a moment and that you have a, a day such as today or a service such as this one to honor the memory of the Holocaust. There are all too many universities where if a speaker will get up, a Jewish speaker, speak on behalf of the State of Israel that he will be roundly condemned. Right now at, Cal, at University of California, Berkeley, the Student Senate has voted to divest from all investments in the State of Israel, and, uh, for, and I don't want to get into a whole subject of that, but it is so ironic that in our world today that those people who deny the Holocaust happened are the ones who are most diligent in saying they want to destroy the Jewish people. It is an irony that whether it be the leaders of Iran or other peoples of the world who claim the Holocaust never happened, they are the ones who are devoted to getting weapons of mass destruction for the very purpose of destroying the people that they said were never victims of the Holocaust. Today, I want to focus on a message that was written by a Christian minister who I uh, respect and admire uh, completely. And this name, uh, this Presbyterian minister's name is named as Douglas Hunica, and he wrote about a person, an extraordinary German Christian whose memory uh, I bless and whose life I had the honor of meeting about seven years before he perished, before he died in, uh, here in America. Uh, He was the only German who testified in the Nuremberg trials about the atrocities that happened to the Jews. He was a German Jew, excuse me, a German Christian who saved hundreds of Jews. He was fearless. I had the pleasure of being his uh, host at uh, several events in 1979, 1980, where I brought him in uh, the San Fernando Valley to different synagogues to speak to the Los Angeles Hebrew High School, to speak to high school Jewish students about uh, his experience as a righteous Gentile. His heroism is just remarkable. Where he would have, uh, where Nazis had confronted him and found out that he was harboring Jews in his factory, in his construction factory, and how he had, uh, had the courage to stand up to them as they entered and had suspicion that he was saving Jews, etc., and he stood up with nothing more than courage and an ability to act, and to act, what I mean by act, to portray himself as if he was a person who should be feared, when in point of fact he was just a regular German citizen. And when the Nazis confronted him in their, in their storm boots and at their weapons, he said to them, do you know who I am? And he looked them in the eyes. Do you know who I am? Do you know the power I have over you, each of you SS men? Do you realize how I can put you into prison for you confronting me like this? It was all contrived and all acting. But through his intimidation and through his confidence, through his ability to look them in the eyes and to say this, he intimidated these SS men and they let him alone and he was able to save hundreds of Jews. And he's one of the righteous Gentiles who is honored at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust memorial in Jerusalem at the uh, Museum uh, for the Holocaust. In any event... Uh, Presbyterian minister Douglas Hennecke describes the behavior of this man, this single soul, whose tale of courage and bravery should be told to every child in every country. Songs should be written about this rare character of this unsung righteous Gentile. His valorous life should be captured on film. Hermann Fritz Grebe was born in 1900 and died in 1986. A manager and engineer in charge of German building firm in Ukraine witnessed mass Nazi executions of Jews. Following the war, he provided vital testimony in the Eisengruppen trial, one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials, invoking bitter persecution from many of his countrymen. After he testified at the Nuremberg trials, it was publicized that he had spoken the single German Christian, the single one, who was testified in the Nuremberg Trials, and he went back to his hometown, and he was shunned. He was shunned, and he was not allowed into the neighborhood, and everybody would uh, cower from, would uh, move, uh, would uh, not look at him, etc. so he was essentially uh, shunned from his community, and so he left and came to this country, and he uh, lived his remaining years in San Francisco. But he would go around and travel and speak to various groups about his acts, about what he did in his interventions in helping save Jewish people. He witnessed outside his factory. I have his testimony here, but I do not want to share all of the detail. But I, uh, I will make it available. If anybody wants to give me their uh, name and address, I will send it to you. But it is easily available in, a, in the Internet age. Uh, just Google Herman Graebe, G-R-A-E-B-E. And his testimony uh, told about how he witnessed the killing of 5,000 Jews in one day by uh, a firing squad, and how the Jews, elderly men, women, and children were forced to take their clothes off not just to take their clothes off, but to put certain clothes here, other clothes there, the shoes there, to take off their jewelry, to put that over here, and that then they were all shot. They were uh, held, holding each other. Uh, uh, children were being held by their mothers. Babies were laughing as they were being held and embraced and parents were cuckooing their babies to calm them so they would not be frightened a moment before they were shot and killed. And then one stack of people was placed into a long grave, and then the next uh, uh bus load of people were brought and placed on top of uh, killed, and then uh, uh, dropped onto the, the next uh, stack of people. And so Herman Grabe in horror, as a consequence of witnessing this as this unspeakable horror. Uh, early on in the war, this is before the more efficient methods of the concentration camps and the gas chambers and the cattle cars bringing them to Auschwitz, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, Mauthausen and other places. And so this was the beginning of the war and it was at that time that Hermann Graeber developed this uh, extraordinary strategy for giving false identities, saving Jews, having them live in his factory and being able to uh, have them work as construction workers, giving them false identity papers, uh, claiming that they were Aryan race, even though in fact they were Jews, et cetera, et cetera. So in 1931, just to give you a little bit more history of this man's life, uh, in 1931, Greba joined the Nazi party. However, he broke with it in 1934 after boldly criticizing a Nazi campaign against Jewish businesses. Following this, he was apprehended by the Gestapo and jailed for several months. He was subsequently released without trial. From 1938 to 1941, Greba participated as a civilian contractor in the construction of the West Wall fortification on Germany's western border. In the summer of 1941, shortly after the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, Graeba was directed to report to the offices of the Reich Railway Administration in Lvov. His assignment was to recruit construction teams to help build and renovate structures essential for the maintenance of railroad communications in Ukraine. Upon arriving there in September, Greba set up his head office and proceeded to deploy subsidiary officers throughout the Soviet Ukraine. The Jewish workforce employed by his company comprised some 5,000 men and women. As a large-scale civilian contractor with extensive connections, Greba witnessed the atrocities perpetrated by the Germans and their Ukrainian henchmen against the helpless Jews. On October 5, 1942, he was present, as I just shared, at a mass killing site and saw how approximately 5,000 Jewish men, women, and children were lined up in front of already dug pits, ordered to remove their clothing, and were cold-bloodedly executed by SS firing squads. Greber would be haunted by what he saw until his death, and after the war, his graphic accounts were incorporated into the evidence of the Nuremberg Trials, which is readily available now on the internet. In his efforts to rescue Jews from the Nazi destruction machine, Greber could take advantage of his official position as the representative of the Josef Jung Company. By arguing that he was performing work essential for the German war effort, he acquired effective leverage over the German district commissioner and his subordinates. Greba deliberately attracted and accepted more assignments and contracts than his company could ever possibly handle so as to employ more Jews. And what did he do with those extra Jews? He hid them in the basement of his factories and he was able to, uh, uh, to lie about what they were doing but ele- enable them to remain living and, and surviving the, uh, the whole Second World War. He would then go to great lengths to protect them and their families. For example, in July of 1942, Grable learned that an imminent liquidation action was going to be directed against the Jews of Rovno, where he had 112 Jews working for him. Having obtained a writ of protection from the deputy district commissioner, he rushed with it to Rovno, where, gun in hand, he managed to secure the release of 150 Jews. It was a close call. Ukrainian policemen were already busy driving the ghetto inmates to their uh, deportation train. But Greba marched the lucky ones away on foot, out of harm's way, just in a moment's time. When some months later the Germans incarcerated the Jews of Zabaldbunov in a ghetto and started deporting them, Greba provided 25 workers with falsified Aryan identification papers. He subsequently transported them in stages with his own car to the far-flung company office in Poltava, hundreds of miles to the east. The Poltava branch was pure fiction. He claimed that he was taking his workers to this uh, branch office of his company. Greba had set it up and maintained it at his own expense for the sole purpose of providing shelter for his Jewish workers. With the advance of the Red Army later in in the war, the group was able to escape the Russian side. Had the car been stopped at one of the numerous German roadblocks on the way, both rescuer and rescued would have been doomed. But fortunately, he was able to travel in safely. In the course of time, Greba's uneconomic policies and unconventional practices began to arouse the suspicion of his company's chiefs. They wanted him recalled and put on trial for embezzlement. But after the collapse of the German positions in eastern Poland, Greba moved with his Jewish office team, first to Warsaw and from there to the Rhineland. And in September 1944, Before the end of the war, he defected with about 20 of his charges to the American lines where he was still able to uh, render valuable strategic advice concerning the Western Wall, the West Wall of the uh, German uh, border. From uh, February 1945 until the autumn of 1946, Graeber worked closely with the war crime